Hey, what's going on? It is a Friday edition of Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and my co-host, Canucks Insider, Thomas Drantz, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Uh, we are live here. Uh, our first uh, time live from the new and improved Kintech studio here, Drancer. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And of course, Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We've got a, a really, really exciting show today, Drancer. And, you know... I like to think all of our shows are exciting to a certain degree, but, but, but this one in particular, I'm, uh, I am legitimately very excited about, uh, later on in the show at 11 o'clock today, Akeem Aliou and Soraya Tinker, uh, are going to join us. They are featured in a new documentary that is airing as part of VIF. It's called Black Ice. Uh, it tells the story of the history and also the current day reality of, of black hockey players in Canada. And I'm really, really excited for that interview. So, again, that's coming up at uh, at 11 o'clock today. Lots to get to before that. Before we go any farther, of course, there was a Canucks preseason game yesterday. Uh, Of course, it is uh, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation today. And in recognition of that day, radio stations across the country are coming together across Canada to amplify, elevate, listen to, learn from Indigenous voices uh, with a day to listen 2022. This is in partnership with the Gore Downey and Cheney Wenjack Fund. Uh, listeners can tune into radio stations across the country, and that includes our sister music stations, Sonic 1049, Jack 969. From 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. today, you'll hear stories from Indigenous leaders, residential school survivors, musicians, and teachers. For more information, you can visit a day to listen.ca. And I know many of our listeners will have the day off. And, you know, this day doesn't, you might have the day off, but it doesn't feel like a typical holiday. And I know a lot of people are looking for ways that they can engage with the the spirit of the day, right? And I think this is a really interesting one. Again, you can head to uh, adaytolisten.ca to find out more. Yeah, it's a vital day for us to listen, particularly because as we grew up, right, in this community, you know, I don't know that I, anyway, speaking for myself and Bo Horvat touched on this too when he addressed some of the reports coming out, uh, you know, mm-hmm. from dig sites at residential schools last year. But he noted that he didn't know anything about this growing up. And likewise, I grew up in this community. Um, you know, there was a section of a social studies textbook that I read that that covered residential schools, but we had no education about what this actually meant and the devastation it wrought for, you know, the indigenous communities um, in Vancouver. And in our province. And so taking a day to take a beat and understand with the full sort of picture uh, who we are, right? Who we are, mm-hmm. um, what our communities have done, right? And sort of processing that as part of our identity, I think, is the only path to the sort of truth and reconciliation that can that can lead to, you know, healing. Um, so an important day. One that we take um, very seriously and, and with due gravity, uh, and, and want to acknowledge at length before we move on to hockey. Yeah, and again, you can uh, you can go to a datalisten.ca. You can also tune in to lots of different radio stations, specifically here, Sonic 1049, Jack 969. Again, stories from Indigenous leaders, residential school survivors, among others. And I also want to uh, point you to our website, sportsnet.ca, where there's a lot of really great uh, storytelling about specifically the intersection between truth and reconciliation and sports up at sportsnet.ca right now as well. So check that out if you do have some time 
throughout the course of the day. We'll get into that and, and we'll, we'll mention that uh, throughout the course of the show because it is a big, uh, of course, a big part of today. But we'll try to move on to hockey now. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. So the Canucks, they lose 4-3 in overtime against the Kraken at Rogers Arena last night. Uh, they blow a 3-1 lead they had going in to the third period. And before we start to dig into it uh, a little bit, Drancer, and what it means, what we can learn, if anything, from that game and from that result, I want to play what Bruce Boudreaux had to say about it because he was not particularly pleased about how things turned out for his team. No, I mean, that's that's pretty disappointing. I mean, that's what we talked about in between periods. <coughs> Excuse me, is winning teams protect the lead. And uh, for the most part, in the past, we were okay. But, I mean, tonight it obviously didn't get done. Good lesson to learn in the preseason as opposed to when the games matter. Well, I hope so. You know, I mean, uh, my biggest thing is that's, you know, two games at home against what I think are were inferior lineups brought. And, and we, didn't, uh, uh, we didn't do what we were supposed to do to get success. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux uh, sounding pretty dejected for the second preseason game of the schedule of the year, Drancer, right there. And, you know, after both of these two losses, and as you heard Boudreaux said, two lineups that you look at and are certainly inferior in talent to the ones the Canucks were icing, uh, we have heard very pointed criticism, you know, first from Jim Rutherford after the loss to Calgary, then last night from Bruce Boudreaux, who again sounded, you know, very, very displeased uh, with what he saw from his team. And I find that really interesting because there is a part of me that just kind of rebels at the idea of taking the preseason that seriously, right? Of, of drawing conclusions about your team from a couple of preseason losses, even against inferior opponents. But I also look at it, and we've heard so much about, you know, raising the bar, raising the standards, pl- practice habits, culture, all of these things. And maybe this is part of it. Maybe this is part of the higher-ups on the team trying to send a message to the players that, yes, it is preseason, we're aware of it, it doesn't count, uh, but if you remember, we had a really bad start last year, and we'd like to avoid that this year. So come on, get serious here, guys. So it's it's such an interesting one, Jamie, because if this were me without the organization being as low on the club's performances, we talked about it on Monday after the loss the Calgary Flames here, right? That the organization was actually really miffed by the way that the team played. And Boudreaux is so upbeat, characteristically upbeat, characteristically positive. There were devastating losses toward the end of the regular season, like high leverage losses that he didn't sound like that after, Mm -hmm. right? Like this was uncharacteristically downtrodden from Boudreaux. Called out his team's laziness at one point. Said, you know, uh, it was... You know, not eviscerating, but it was definitely, you know, I think downtrodden's the right word. And like, you you were in the scrum, and just listening it back, I almost felt like some of the media was a little taken aback by we it. Were, we were a little surprised, because there's a lot of questions about, hey, Kuzmenko played well, and your power play played totally. well, right? We're, we're and then looking, it was like, oh, okay. We're looking to talk horse race, and, and Boudreaux kind of wasn't having it. And then if you listen back, you'll find me sort of be, um, I ask a question, and I think the question was something like, um, something like, you know, 
what do you want to see over the last four games, right? Like acknowledging his disappointment and then mm-hmm. what do you want to see? Like what do you need to see? And he immediately was happy to answer that. Like he immediately knew that I'd tapped into a vein and then sort of ans- uh, added with like, are you worried about bad habits forming here? And again, he went off and talked about the laziness of the group. That w- Honestly, at that point, I was just like, okay, I'm not going to ask about Niels Hoaglander specifically, or I think I had already had, but I wasn't going to ask about like Danny DeKaiser specifically. I wanted to try to, you know, effectively the question is like, man, what's going on? <laughs> you know, that's honestly what I asked. And he was happy to elaborate on it. Um, the organization itself, I think, is looking at a group of players who seem to be treating training camp as if they're a team that's been in the playoffs every year. Right? Like, as if they're a team that's accomplished something, ever. And I think they're a little miffed. I think there's a sense of disappointment that, you know, they're not coming in with the sort of mission that the that, that everyone was talking about prior to Whistler, right? Like, prior to Whistler, everyone was talking about being dialed, being focused, right? Yeah. Making no, sure to no get No excuses. Off, no excuses. Unfinished business. And, yeah, it's just preseason and these games don't count, but I think there's a sense that, you know, people have come in and are easing themselves in and haven't broken a sweat and aren't moving their feet. And clearly, Bruce Boudreaux, Canucks management, don't like what they see. Now, there's an added component here. If you're Jim Rutherford, for example, and have talked at length about, oh, well, you know, a lot of what we do well is because of our goalie. Mm-hmm. And then you pull your goalie. Yep. And you immediately lose with a ton of giveaways and poor defensive play in front of your young goalie who's been a star at training camp to this point, do you feel like that changes your mind about your concern about the group? Or do you feel like that's that's a sort of occurrence that's going to cement your view that, hey, like, yeah, great, we can win with star goaltending. Like, that's not enough. That's not enough. You know, that that's, that's how I sort of interpret the loss and, and interpret Boudreaux's uh, disappointment to some extent. And, I, you know, I'm not guessing or interpreting. This is how the organization feels. Uh, I think they feel like they wanted to see these players come in and prove that they can conduct themselves like a winning team. And I think they've been disappointed. And so, again, my instinct is to point out that you don't want to win too much in the preseason. <laughs> you know, like you don't want to win too much in the preseason. You don't, who cares at all? None of this matters. And yet the organization itself is looking at it very differently. And we've got to reflect that. And I will say, yeah, my instinct as well is like, you know, and I, I was listening to the post game show, right? And people are upset, and and Sat and Bick are kind of saying, "Come on, guys! Like, we're we're really just trying to learn things about the players. This isn't about the result." That's a hundred percent my instinct as well. A hundred percent my instinct, and that's all happening before we hear uh, from Bruce Boudreaux last night. I will say, kind of thinking about it last night after I heard from the coach, and thinking about it more this morning, I do think there's something a little bit refreshing. Just for the idea of, as I said, raising the bar, right? Trying to raise the standard, even if it seems almost a little goofy because, yeah, it's two preseason games. They've been in overtime, both of them, right? Like, it's not as if you're getting blown out even in them or anything like that. But maybe this is what it takes. Maybe this is what yeah. has to be done. I don't know. They're 500. <laughs> yeah, they're a 500 team in the preseason, no, at least uh, in the games at Rogers Arena. Yeah, I mean... You know, those rosters, there were like four NHL players on the Kraken roster yeah. last last night. You know, like Will Borgen's dominating defensively. 
I love Will Borgen, but come on. You can't you can't have Will Borgen eating your lunch money as a shutdown defense defender. You, you and Will Borgen's parents. The biggest Will Borgen fans. I'm the biggest Will Borgen. I was talking to Harmon about it. I was like, that's the type of defender the Canucks need during the game. And then as I as the game went on, I kept like upping what I'd pay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, they should trade a third rounder for that guy. And then by the end of the game, I'm like, second in a prospect. <laughs> Bring me Will Borgen. Um, no, but seriously, you know, you can't have that, right? You, yeah. you can't. Um, anyway, let's let's zoom out because that's the big picture. The big picture is there's now some pressure on this team to go into Seattle and play well, right? I think the pressure is mounting on some of the vets who would have preferred to ease their way in yeah. to, to show up a bit, to, to do something now. Well, we'll see what kind of group they send to Seattle, which I think will be really interesting as well. But, yeah, the one thing that struck me was a lot of the guys that aren't you don't necessarily look at as – key players on the team, right? High-end players on the team, I think acquitted themselves pretty well. And, you know, I thought Elias Patterson played well. I thought Quinn Hughes played well as well. But I've seen a lot of people texting in uh, even earlier in the day, you know, criticism about JT Miller and how he played in that game. And again, it's one game. It's preseason. All that, it's preseason. But I do wonder if... Again, from the organizational perspective, as you said, maybe some pressure mounting on vets to say, hey, you're supposed to be the guys. You are supposed to be the people who are propelling us to success this year. We need to see it right now. And, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be really interesting to see what kind of group they send to Seattle now. So quick note, quick note on the group they're going to send to Seattle. I don't think the club's made a formal decision on this, so I want to note that I'm not reporting this ironclad so much as – I've you know I've I've worked the phones a little bit this morning and and can say with some confidence that I'm familiar with the organization's thinking on this. I believe, and Bruce Boudreaux was asked last night and said, you know, that's up to Patrick, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But in terms of further reductions of the roster, I am not expecting any before the Seattle game. That could change. That could change. I don't think a final decision's been made on that. But my understanding is. Early next week is likely when we'll see the next reduction. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they go through the next two games before further reducing the roster. So, uh, note for fans, my understanding is the organization is leaning toward um, waiting for the next two games to occur before further reducing the roster. Uh, again, not bulletproof, subject to change, but that's that was that was my understanding of how the organization was leaning on it this morning. In terms of what's the logic behind that decision, just from from your perspective? Well, you've got the two groups anyway, so you're basically already running an AHL and an NHL right. group out there. Um, this way, you can you know sort of have guys go, and and obviously there's no one they want to sneak through waivers early. So um, you know that I think that would be the logic behind it. But again, that could change over the course of additional hockey operations conversations. Today, my understanding was that the organization was leaning toward not reducing their roster until after the next two games and then sort of really getting down to their numbers for the final two games of the preseason on October 5th and 7th. In regards to some of the players we saw play well, right? I thought Linus Carlson had his best game. I know he played well in Penticton in terms of the scoreboard, but I was really worried about his pace coming out of that tournament. Like, I was like, oh boy. Like, I don't even think he can play NHL games until he improves his skating. And, you know, you watch him last night, and it wasn't pretty. He's never he's never first to the puck. Nope. So it it can look difficult. The, the other thing with his skating too is he's he's big. 
So yeah. it looks a little lumbering, right? Like no, I think no, no, it, no, no, no. It, it is. Yeah, a little but it, lumbering. It, it, his it's size, not fluid. his size accentuates the price problem. For uh, me. Just know. purely from an aesthetic uh, standpoint. I, see, I think I think size accentuates everything. If you're fast and big, you sure, look you faster, look really fast, like yeah. like Alex Tuck, right? And if you're fast and slow, you look slower. Like it, you're big and slow. Yeah. So so yeah. the the size the size um accentuates everything. I had a I had a pro scout I was talking to last night in the in the press box describe him to me because he was quite impressed with his game actually. Um, this is a rival pro scout, although Canucks pro scouting is in town. Uh, I I happened to notice that, but uh, this was a rival team's pro scout. Uh, noted to me, he said, "He's uh he's a classic ugly effective guy," <laughs> and I thought that was you know right on point. I liked his game. I thought he played really well in terms of the creativity on the half wall. Uh, his shot that he took on the power play wasn't, you know, a Kuzmenko howitzer, but it was, uh, it was a, you know, I thought he showed creativity in that spot. Thought he played well on the second unit. Thought he complimented Elias Pettersson better than I'd expected. I liked a fair bit of what he did on the wall. Um, you know, his area game played in that environment. Now, relatively soft competition. Yes. That's not that's not bona fide NHL level competition by any means. So we'll see. Uh, he probably deserves another shot. To me, if the if the test is, does this guy look like he could give you five, you know, ten minutes a game in a middle six role? Should injuries hit down the line uh, this season? I think he passed that. Like, I think I would be not, you know, not my first choice, but would I be comfortable thrusting him into that role if I needed him for a week or two? Yeah, I would be at this point, and that's a huge win for a twenty-two year old rookie who, you know, looked in Penticton and at Whistler to me. Like, his pace would have to improve a significant amount. I, I Yesterday was the first time I saw how it could work for him at the NHL right. level. I hadn't seen that yet. I sort of saw how it could work for him when I watched him last night. Uh, to me, that's a good sign. Kuzmenko. Oh, my goodness. That was fantastic. But we knew the shot would play in space, and he well, got it in space. Here's the thing with the shot. And maybe I was ignorant, but I, I, I was not expecting him to have this level of shot. No, me right? I had heard a lot about his playmaking and his skill level and his hands and all of that. I had not heard as much about the shot. The shot looks like his best attribute right now. And and he's got some other good ones, too. Don't get me wrong that I want to talk about. But the shot really, really stands well, out in a way you, I wasn't expecting. I thought you could see the playmaking on the power play. Yes. And I think you couldn't see it at 5-on-5. Five five, and I think partly it's because I don't know that he's really comfortable yet doing like the way he played in the KHL was to be puck dominant mm -hmm. right play on the perimeter a fair bit protect the puck a lot right like he'd be puck dominant he'd skate around and then he could thread these passes to soft areas of coverage where his teammates were and I think that's why his playmaking stood out so much in the KHL was that he was the guy sort of driving that for his line all of a sudden you put him with Pedersen and Quinn Hughes and well guess what there's He's other guys guy. who, there's other guys who are going to get around the ice smeagle around the ice uh, you know to quote uh, Jim Hewson, with uh with the, with the puck on their stick and you're kind of the guy who has to finish Turns out he's got the skill to do that too. That was a beautiful wrist shot for the first. Oh one. yeah, that was a fantastic wrist shot. And then obviously he gets the tap in just from uh, the the beautiful oh, Pedersen pass. On the unbelievable Pedersen pass. That was not not bad. But yeah, his playmaking instincts on the power play, you know, sliding into that net front Brock Besser role, and you can just tell he has more of a natural inclination when he gets the puck below the goal line to be that playmaker, right? Yeah. Besser, it's, ten, it's it's more functional. It's, I'm going to move it to the next guy. I'm going to get in position. Kuzmenko, there's, I'm going to hold. I'm going to survey. I'm going to see if I can pick that next pass. It doesn't mean 
I'm not saying, oh, no, he's got to be on that power play let's now. Let's not oversell no, 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 no. this one because I think there's going to be a rush to do so in this market, but Besser has become really, really good in his yes, own right. Yes, exactly. I, don't wanna, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying, and therefore, Kuzmenko should replace Brock Besser in that role in the first power play unit. I think it's a different wrinkle. Maybe you could use it at times if you want. I also think it... Well, Kuzmenko's going to get the first shot, probably. So there is a chance. like he's got, the, the door is open for him to win that job if he is really productive. Um, and so, you know, I think it's worth discussing. I'm just saying, you know, don't we can't take last night and say, well, that's what no, they should do. He's better than Brock Besser. No, exactly. <laughs> you you know? can absolutely cannot do that. With Kuzmenko, though, I think we're going to see the skill more in time and space. And I think yep. it's going to take weeks to months for him to begin to show that skill set the way he did in the KHL in traffic. And, and once he's, you know, at five on five. With uh, against better defenders in in real NHL games with points on the line, I think it's going to be a little bit of a work in progress for him five on five. I also do think that putting Pedersen with both him and and Linus Carlson made that line too slow. There were some moments in transition where they just weren't going to get to pucks, uh, which could have been dangerous sort of against the grain opportunities. So you know that line for me, like Linus Carlson. From a player development perspective, got to go to the American League, in my view. Oh, as well as he's shown, as well as he's shown, I don't think there's a real case for him to make this team. But as injuries mount, <laughs> you know, that case can become stronger without question. Um, so we'll see. We'll see with uh, we'll see with Linus Carlson. I suspect he goes to the American League. With Kuzmenko, we saw what he can do in time and space. We saw it on the power play. We saw it when he got that fabulous pass from Quinn Hughes. But I, I do think it's going to take a little bit more time five on five because, again, you're only seeing this like real, you know, high end flashes of skill when he's when he's got time, when he's got a fair bit of space as created for him by by other players. And and that time, like that space, it's going to be closed on more quickly, um, you know, once you get into actual game action. And so, I, you know. Great first impression from yeah. from Kuzmenko over the course of the past week. I don't want to take that away from him. I'm just saying, let's not let the hype train leave the station here. There's a lot of skill, but there's also still a lot of learning and progress that needs to happen. I've, too. I've been, my confidence in Kuzmenko has grown from day one in Whistler to this point. And part of it is, you know, the pace question is still there, but I don't, he doesn't seem to be mentally overwhelmed by the speed of the game, right? It's more of a physical thing, learning how to protect the puck, learning how quickly that space is going to, uh, is going to go away at the NHL level. But, to me, it looks like he's processing the game at a high level, right? He's thinking the game at a high level right now. That gives me confidence that he's going to be able to make those adjustments. It might take some time, yeah. but I, I have a degree of confidence that he's going to be able to get there. And the other thing that, that has stood out to me from day one uh, of training camp is, you know, he is willing to go to the net. He's willing to take the puck to the net. When he gets those opportunities, that's what he's trying to do. And look, if you combine, you know, that shot, his hands, his skill level, and a willingness to go to the net – you're setting yourself up to have a chance to be productive at the NHL level if you have all three of those things. Well, and one last thing is he misses the shot in overtime, and you know I think it's fair to say that his first period in both on both Sunday's game and on Thursday's game were far and away his, his best. best. Mm -hmm. And you know we've seen him look a little winded at practices, so that's sort of another area of growth here, right? Is can you sustain the sort of dangerous attacking that you do, you know, in your first seven eight minutes, um, you know, in your latter sort of eight minutes uh, as, you know, most likely a middle six forward this season. I, I still think that's a question for me. 
Um, because you know, a little bit of fatigue goes a long way in yeah. terms of explaining why a net gets missed. That or might why... that might be the biggest question for me, honestly, is the yeah. conditioning at this point, especially for early in the season. Yeah. Uh, impact. Well, and how it translates late in games and late in shifts, right? And so we're, we'll see. It's one of those things that's sort of hard to ascribe, right? Like it's we see it at practice. You don't seem to see it in games, but then if you think about it and think about the way that he plays in the first periods versus the latter part of the game, it begins to sort of be something worth monitoring. Not something I'm saying is for sure an issue. Not, no. not even say, saying that it's sort of uh, related um, as a like causally related, but something to monitor as this preseason and as this season goes along. In any event, uh, a wonderful debut so clearly like your mental picture now of how Kuzmenko can compliment Elias Pettersson is like vibrant right like I think it's in every Canucks fan's mind's eye they're like wow this skilled goes to the net like stocky you know Russian forward who with a right-handed shot and he can shoot like that and he's playing with Pettersson like yep. man like the mental picture now is straight up you know jumping off the page but I do think there's going to be some growing pains yet as he adjusts the NHL game. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. We'll read some of them on the other side. More Canucks talk coming up, too. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drantz. Another two-hour edition of the show, two Canucks Hours uh, for you today, day after the Canucks lose 4-3 in overtime against the Kraken in preseason yesterday. We're coming to you live from the Kintec Footwear Studio, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, and I did enjoy this one uh, that came in a little bit earlier. Chet in Burnaby says, I can't wait for the coverage of the closed-door players-only preseason meeting. <laughs> Transfer. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> has there ever been a exhibition season players-only meeting? I'm sure there has There somewhere. better not be, man. Come on. <laughs> like, again... There's raising the bar, and then there's being completely irrational about what preseason represents. Well, and it's also, like, again, if left to my druthers, I would say this doesn't matter at all. It's just that I'm reporting on what I'm hearing, and I think it matters to people internally. So um, it is what it is. Uh, we got a big show coming up. As I mentioned, uh, Akeem Aliou and uh, Soraya Tinker are going to join us in the next segment. Very excited. They're part of the, uh, the new documentary, Black Ice which is featured as part of VIF uh, screening tonight at six at the Vancouver Playhouse tickets still available. It's also playing on Thursday, October six. We, uh, we both had a chance to watch it uh, in preparation for this interview. Fantastic documentary. If you like hockey, if you're at all interested in hockey history, uh, you really owe it to yourself to, to check it out. And they, they both feature in it. I'm really, really excited for that conversation. Yeah. And eye opening to get a perspective on this game that I've spent my entire life around uh, that I didn't have. Like hundred percent that I just didn't have. Well, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but just quickly, you know, you and I were talking before the show and, you know, part of the film, again, it's called black ice. It focuses on the kind of current and ongoing experiences of black hockey players in the NHL and other leagues at lower levels. So, you know, there's interviews with our two guests coming up, Akeem Aliou and Soraya Tinker, but also Wayne Simmons, PK Subban, Anthony Duclair, Matt Dumba, et cetera, et cetera, Matt Dumba. Uh, that's all, you know, really, really harrowing, really vital. The other aspect of the film, which is just fascinating, is the historical element, right? And talking about, uh, you know, the league and the Maritimes 
Uh, it was called the Colored Hockey League of the Marita- Maritimes that began in the the late 19th century yeah, that really I knew church league. I knew really nothing about. Yeah, and, and you, you know, I was saying to you, kind of, I think this is probably the case for a lot of people pre like Rocket Richard. My sense of hockey history is pretty dim. So just getting a glimpse into that world, kind of turn of the 20th century hockey and, and, and what that league was all about uh, was excellent. So anyways, we'll talk more about that coming up well, at 11 and o'clock. A ton of innovation stemming from that league, um, you know, and, and things that I'd sort of incorrectly, like I've written stuff attributing things to, to the innovations of the Pacific Coast Hockey League, which of course the Vancouver uh, Millionaires were part of. Mm-hmm. Um, Vancouver's one Stanley Cup winner, right? And, uh, and in fact... Some of those innovations that I've attributed to the PCHL were really, really date back to 20 years before in the in the Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes. It was a eye opening um, walk through hockey history for me in that respect as well. Let's talk Rachel Dory. Yeah, well, quickly, just we've been we've seen the text come in over the last couple of days, and I know there's been rumors and reports out there on Twitter about Rachel Dory's status with the organization. I just saw uh, Frank Saravelli say that the Canucks have confirmed analyst Rachel Dory no longer working for the organization. He also says that Rachel Dory did not respond to a request for comment. I understand the Canucks confirmed the same to you as well. Yeah, this uh, morning transfer. this morning I finally was able to get confirmation and it's one where again likewise I have I've gotten no comment from the other party. Um so, you know, it is one of those that took a while to come out in part because no one was confirming it on record. Um I did notice though that uh, Rachel was not in her usual perch uh, filming mm-hmm. practice on Wednesday, um you know, which to me was a strong indication. Um you know, we I don't have the details yet. I don't have the details yet. No, there's so not. We, there, there's there's not. very little. I understand the questions coming in, right? She was a high-profile hire. I understand all that. At, there's very little we can say at about this it point. At this point, yeah, that's, that's just pretty much what it comes down to. Uh, but and we the organization's see. not sharing details on or off record, so this is one that's going to take a, a bit of time to, uh, I think, come out. Uh, as the story evolves. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. I want to talk a little bit more about some of what we saw in the game from last night. Also, maybe let's a little bit... Let's talk about the bad. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about the bad. Because I, I also want to talk big picture, kind of stock up, stock down, but also just in terms of the team. What have we learned or not learned about this team uh, through you know a week plus of training camp and a couple of preseason games here? And if we're going to talk about the bad, and still, look, this is not revelation uh, a revelation by any stretch. I was concerned about it coming into the season. I remain deeply concerned about it. I might even be more concerned than I was how is this blue line going to hold up? How do you put these pieces together to get the most out of the blue line? I liked some of what I saw last night from the defenders. You know, I, I thought Jack Rathbone had a good game. I liked how Kyle Burrows performed. I still was had major questions about the Danny DeKaiser and Tucker Pullman pairing. And, I, and you know, that... Look, Danny DeKaiser, there's a good chance he doesn't feature on this team. But Tucker Pullman is going to be here. He's going to be around. They're, they're going to hope that he can play some sort of role... And I still just don't have a strong idea about how they're going to put this defense together to get the kind of performance they need from it. I I would say for as worried as I was about the Canucks defense eight days ago, I'm more worried today, right? To to be honest, over the course of the first week plus of preseason, not only have I seen nothing to disabuse me of the notion that the defense is going to hold this team back, but I've become more convinced. In fact, it's that view is solidified further. Um, Danny DeKaiser 
is on a PTO, and that means when you're on a PTO, you have to come in and show something, right? Like you have to earn a contract. You have a higher bar than everyone else. I just think there's no way that he's leapt over that. And, and you know, I think that's true from the perspective of the organization as well, even though they view him because of his defensive instincts mm-hmm. as an NHL player. Um, you know, has he has he leapt over that bar or is the club going to continue to explore their options both on the trade market and, you know, perusing the waiver wire? I mean, the answer is the latter. The answer is the latter quite clearly. So, um, and just to me, you know, no matter whether you have Quinn Hughes on the right or you move him back over to the left and then the left side is even more crowded, there's no way to Kaiser can be above the depth chart or, or higher on the depth chart than Jack Rathbone. Like that's just, no. there's, that, that's, that can't happen. No, and I don't and think, I don't think anyone sees it that way. And if that's not the case, then it's going to be really tough to find a spot. Well, and you don't want Jack Rathbone, I don't think, playing second pair minutes right off the hop. You know, I, I this team may end up in that spot where they just have no better options, but I don't think that's your first choice. No. And it shouldn't be. I don't think that's fair to him. So, you know, let's talk about Quinn Hughes on the right side now. Quinn Hughes's most dynamic moments in the game came when he was, as he called it, surfing mm-hmm. and playing back on the left side where he is so liquid and dynamic that it's outrageous. A joy to watch. That pass to Kuzmenko. Unbelievable. On the left side, but, on the wall, just perfectly in control. But not just a pass. It's the way there's a stutter step. He draws. By the time Quinn Hughes makes that pass, if you watch, if you rewatch it, there are four defenders in frame. He just has this gravity. He sucks everybody in. And then Kuzmenko's walking down Main Street with like, you know, time to pick up groceries, give his kid a (laughs) a coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Grab grab a coffee at the Starbucks with the line. You know, the one with the line. Like, not even the mobile order, like quick grab it on the way to work. Like, like stop. Wait in line, give them the name, pay with your visa. Like, he, he has time. Kuzmenko's doing the thing where uh, he shows up late. And he's like, sorry, I'm late, but he's carrying an iced coffee. It's like, well, you could have been on time if you didn't stop for the iced coffee. <laughs> yeah, he's making trade offers in fantasy football to his league mates. Like, come on. Um, Quinn Hughes' most dynamic moments in that game came on the left side. Quinn Hughes continues to say he loves it. I don't think Quinn Hughes minces words as a, as a policy. I don't think he's blowing smoke. I think he likes it. I think he's enjoy- enjoying playing on the right side. He didn't look like a defensive liability. He can do it. He's Quinn Hughes. But you can tell when he's on the right side. He moves the puck more quickly. He doesn't make as many moves with it. Um, I don't think he holds the blue line quite as well, although he still holds it you know, at a high-end level. Um, you know, I just... Like, you cannot put Quinn Hughes in a position where he's not uh, you know at his absolute best even if he's 98% of what he is on the right side uh, as to what he is on the left side uh, um you know a, an amount that I'd fade by the way I'd I'd call it more like 95 90% um even if he gets to 98% that extra 2% matters a ton for a player you know whose skill is precision right whose every sort of thing he pulls off the gravity that he exerts is based on a level of precision that's almost unmatched elsewhere in the league as a playmaker, as a skater, as an undersized guy. Um, it, it matters a lot for a team that doesn't have other high-end talent on defense, too. It right. needs him to be an elite, a true elite top-end guy there, on, on the blue line. There is no path to the playoffs for the Canucks that doesn't involve Quinn Hughes being a top 25 player in this league this year, right? Maybe a top 15 like, that's how good he has to be. There's no path for this team to get to where they want to go that doesn't involve Quinn Hughes being at his absolute best. And this is not to say that Quinn Hughes, again, this is not about whether or not Quinn Hughes can do it. I don't think that's up for debate. Quinn Hughes can do it. 
It's just that Quinn Hughes is so good on the left. It's more about what Quinn Hughes can do than it is about what he can't, mm-hmm. right? It's that he's so good on the left. And sort of to top it off, it's not like him playing on the right side solves an issue for the Canucks, in my view, right? Like, he plays on the right side, and all of a sudden you have a gaping hole on your second pair, right? Yeah. He plays on the left side, and you have a gaping hole on the top pair right D. But, like, either way, in your top four, you have a gaping hole. You only have three top four defensemen. Like, this – I feel like this team has spent multiple seasons banging their head against a wall looking for a silver bullet to solve their issues on defense. And it's been things like, you know, Nate Schmidt or, like, Ducker Pullman and – Oliver Ekman Larson. Oliver Ekman Larson. The fact is, is that they haven't improved the defense. And, like, this summer especially, they literally are returning the same group with Danny DeKaiser on a PTO. Like, they haven't improved the defense. They, I don't think there's a better option than what they rolled out last year. OEL with Myers, Hughes with Shen. Like, I don't think there's a better option than that. I just think that that's the hand that they've dealt themselves, and they need to play it. Uh, that's my view anyway. I, I'm, I'm willing to be convinced, but I just, like, I can't even think of a moment or a play in that game that Quinn Hughes made on the right side that I thought was dynamic to the level that he is every shift, right? Joyful to watch play the game on the left. I would still like to see Quinn Hughes and OEL with OEL sliding over to the right side, right? Where you, uh, you're you giving Quinn Hughes the freedom to be on that left side and do what he does best and be dynamic there. And OEL, who does have a little bit of experience playing on that side, you're asking to not hang back entirely. You still want him involved in in the offense, but you're not expecting him to be the kind of the dynamic force that you need Quinn Hughes to be, right? So I would, uh, I would have... I would at least want to see that before they go back to the other pairings. Now, as you said, well, you still got the big question of who the heck is going to be your left side guy in the top four. And you're pretty much, you know, Danny DeKaiser certainly does not look up to that kind of role at the moment. Who knows if that changes, but I wouldn't count on it. Are you really going to be that confident grabbing somebody from the waiver wire to to plug into that spot, to plug into a really key position? And if you're not, then you're left with either Jack Rathbone, as you said, probably not fair to him to ask him to play that sort of role right off the bat, or Travis Dermott. And Travis Dermott has been tried in that role before. And and also uncertain injury status. Like, we don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know. Or you're back to, well, we're going to move Luke Shen over to the left side, or we're going to move Tucker Pullman over to the left side or something. And then you're playing another guy out of position, also, I don't feel great about either of those pairings alongside Tyler Myers. So they're just in this pickle where there's no way to line it up that you're going to look at it and say, oh, wow, everything clicks there. That's great. It all fits really smoothly together. And it does certainly seem to be trending towards Hughes, Shen, OEL, Myers as yeah, a top four. And we'll that's, see- that's where it's pointing right now. And we'll see how it develops. Again, this is not about what Quinn Hughes can or can't do on the right side. It's just about how good he is on the left, for me anyway. I just think that's going to be their best alignment. I know they'd love to find a way to play Hughes and OEL 25 minutes a night, mm-hmm. right? I think they'd love to find a way to get OEL into more offensive situations. Um, you know, OEL and Hughes were switching a lot, and there were parts of it that looked really good last night, especially through the first 40 minutes. Um, I just I just worry that it takes too much off the table in terms of Hughes's gravity, which is such a unique and special skill and so essential for this team if they're going to get to where they want to go. A lot of fans upset about Tanner Pearson's giveaways in the third period. I think we got to talk about that. Um, that first line did not play well with the exception of Connor Garland. Connor Garland had two moments in the game that were like my favorite things that I've seen on the ice in a long time. The first was there was an offensive zone possession where the net came off its moorings and Garland, acting quickly, replaced the net 
while while play was going on. He's cycling down low. The net falls off its moorings, and Garland quickly replaces the net. Then he jumps out out front into the slot, finds a soft area of coverage, gets a pass from, I think, JT Miller, and, and generates a high-danger shot. If he had scored there, it would have been one of the coolest goals I'd ever seen. <laughs> like, honestly, it would have just been so cool. It's a goal that he would have created not just with his shot, not just with his work to get open, but also with the fact that he personally kept play alive by putting the net back on his moor- moorings. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, additionally, at the end of the game, scored by one of his good friends, Ryan Donato. Like, they're golf buddies. They hang out all the time in Boston during the summer. Um, Garland is the chasing player in the three-on-three situation as Donato beats Artur's uh, Shilovs. 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 Okay. Good to know. Artur's Shilovs um, with a, uh, you know, backhand goal. And Gar- Donato is prone on the ice, having sort of bowled over Shilovs on the, on the play. And his stick is sort of hanging in the air. And Garland skates by and in frustration, uh, sort of chops it out of his buddy's hands. And then, in a moment, he immediately like he immediately feels bad about it. Picks up Donato's stick and places it quite neatly as the Kraken are celebrating in the goal mouth on the on the top of the Canucks net, so that Donato is able to easily retrieve it. And I just thought that was hilarious. Like there's just this you know classic com- competition between buddies, right? Like yeah. ah, and then like ah, nice goal, bud. You know, I thought that was just like a perfect encapsulation of of what it's like to compete against your friend, um, you know, w- in whatever you do. I, I just loved that. Um, Niels Hoaglander, good game. I liked it from Niels Hoaglander. I can't. I still don't know how to read this though. Well, so I the thing I liked about it was that I thought that fourth line together as a unit played pretty much how you would want them to play, right? Niels Amon was like was really noticeable with his skating. You know, Dakota Joshua made the uh, the biggest impact, the biggest impression that he's made so far. And then Niels Hoaglander, to the extent that that line was able to create scoring chances, generate opportunities, I thought he was a big part of it, right? So to me, it, it, it was a good game from Niels Hoaglander because I look at it, not that it proves 100%, okay, we're going to play him on a fourth-line role or whatever, but it proved to me that it's an option, that it's something worth trying, that it's something he can do and be successful at, right? Like, that that line, I was like, okay, this line's working together. If you wanted to see what he would look like on that energy line role, you saw a pretty good example of it, I thought, last night. You did, but, like, why wasn't he playing with Pedersen? You know, I still can't square... Vancouver's injury situation with giving him that fourth line opportunity and the more the game went on the more convinced I was that as well as I thought he was playing was he doing enough to win the coach's trust right like was he I might think one thing but there's only one guy who's going to matter in terms of where Hoaglander is ultimately going to play and it's Boudreaux and considering Hoaglander's usage down the stretch last season you know and the fact that he wasn't really given a plum opportunity. Like, he was given an opportunity to make the team yesterday, and I thought he took advantage of that, and I thought he played well in that role, but I still can't square what I saw as a good as a good game from Hoaglander with the opportunity he was given, which seemed, you know, not beneath him, but beneath where my expectation would be um, that it should be, considering Vancouver's forward yeah. injury situation. So I, I feel like I come out of that thinking he's sort of a neutral stock in terms of whether he's trending up or trending down. See, I look at it as they want to get some information about what other roles they can use him in, and also they wanted to put Linus Carlson in a very specific spot. Because as we know, as we talked about, you're not going to put him on that energy skating line, right? That's that's not his game. You have to put him uh, in a position with you know guys who are going to be making plays in the offensive zone. So I think if 
if that had been a situation where Linus Carlson wasn't dressing for the game, then yeah, you put Hoaglander with Kuzmenko and Patterson. But I don't have a problem with them using the preseason to get a little bit more information and just, okay, where can we use this guy? And again, it wouldn't be my preferred spot for him, especially with the injuries. But if they feel, okay, now we don't just have to get him in that in a top six role or in a middle six role. We can play him elsewhere in the lineup. I mean, I think that's ultimately a good thing for his, his status with the team. Yeah, it is. But his status with the team, at least off the hop, should probably be in the top nine. Like, one injury should put him in the top nine, and he didn't get that look. So, again, I just can't square his form, which I thought was great with the opportunity. Dakota Joshua, I thought we finally saw. Yep why he's going to be on this team. You saw why why the brain trust was very high on him and keen to get him. No one else on this team can throw a hit like the one he threw at Michael Kempney, which was heavy and clean. And no, you know, the fight that he had with uh, John Hayden, John Hayden gets the little sucker punch in later and Dakota Joshua was furious about it quite rightly. That was a dirty play. Um I thought Joshua demonstrated the size and like heavy toughness component that there, there's just no one else in this Canucks bottom six that brings that element at all. Uh, Joshua does. And as such, I thought we finally saw it. Like, I think he's been quiet. I think the organization thought he'd been quiet. Last night we saw why he's going to make this team. I thought he moved well. I thought he made a couple plays in the offensive zone. It was, as you said, then obviously the toughness really, really jumped out, uh, jumped off the screen, certainly watching from home. So, yeah, you saw why they are so interested in him. And as you said, why uh, he's going to make the team. And, yeah, again, I thought that line played well. Played pretty much. I I, I liked Neil Zoman's game yeah. a lot last night, too. Responsible. Was... He seemed to leave in a little bit of discomfort late. Um, Neil uh, Will Lockwood similarly seemed to be battling some sort of back ailment uh, through the second period. Like, he wasn't sitting on the bench for long stretches. So we'll see if there's uh, injury news stemming from either of those guys at practice today. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Up next, very excited for this, Akeem Aliou and Soraya Tinker join us in studio. They're part of the new movie, the documentary Black Ice, which is featured as part of VIF right now. It airs tonight at 6 at the Vancouver Playhouse. They will be joining us again in studio for the next segment. It's Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Myself, Jamie Dodd, my co-host, Thomas Drantz, here with you. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We've been talking about it throughout the course of the show and now are really, really pleased uh, to be joined by our next guests in studio. They're part of the documentary Black Ice, which is playing tonight as part of VIF at 6 at the Vancouver Playhouse. Professional hockey players Akeem Aliou and Soroya Tinker are here with us. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. How are you today? Good. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. It is our pleasure. Yeah, we're great. Um, excited to be here, have a little chat with you. Yeah, it's uh, well. We were we were just talking before we got on the mic. It's so nice just to be able to meet people in person and have them in studio again, yeah. and rather than doing this all over Zoom or the phone. So that part is thrilling, but also just because of the movie and your involvement in it, we're we're really excited. And you know, first, just tell us a little bit about uh, about how you got involved with uh, the Black Eyes film. Yeah, I mean, for myself, I I heard that the documentary was going to be made, and I wanted to be a part of it, and was wondering if women's perspectives were going to be listened to and heard and and portrayed in the film. Um, So I actually reached out and wanted to be involved and wanted to tell my truth at my point in my career, Um, and we went from there. 
Yeah, we're just having a little bit of technical problems with uh, with Soroya's mic, but we'll get those figured out in a second. But Akeem, uh, I'll let you talk while I uh, do some troubleshooting here yeah, no <laughs> as worries. well. Um, so for myself, it was about a year and a half ago. Um, um, Vinay and Hubert reached out and um, obviously asked if I wanted to be part of the film. Um, wanted to be part of the film. Obviously, um, it was something that I was... a uh, little bit skeptical about that it was going to be made um but obviously super excited they kind of told me the vision on it um i was also blessed enough to be able to get the book from the fossey brothers in 2007 so i've known the story for some time um so obviously coming up um when 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 hubert and vinay approached me regarding the opportunity i was super excited about it it's a platform that's really never been given to uh, people of color in our game that's obviously predominantly white games so um, I think for a long time with uh, what myself and the HDA were doing was, was really difficult because we're kind of alone and doing it and um, little by little um, a lot of people started getting on board and kind of pushing the message forward so um, that was super exciting and, and, and rewarding so to be part of something like this and, and have other members of the HDA and obviously individuals like Soroya and Sarah and everyone else that's, um, that's in the film was super empowering. Um, and it's just an opportunity that I couldn't pass on. Um, like I said, it's a platform that's never been given to us before, so we wanted to use it and do it justice. Um, and I think we're really excited about the product, and uh, and I'm really hoping people go and check it out. And I just want to kick it back over to Soraya, because I'm not sure we got your answer on the, on the record the first time about because of technical issues, but uh, your involvement in the film and how it, that came about. Yeah, so I mean, I, I actually reached out when I heard that the documentary was going to be made, and I was wondering if women perspectives were going to be heard and listened to and, and told in the film. Um, so I was at a point in my career where I felt like my truth needed to be told, and I was ready to speak up. Uh, so I reached out to Vinay, and, and we went from there. And Soraya, I just want to ask you, because one part of the film really stood out to me, because it was a perspective that immediately seemed obvious to me, but that, of course, I could never have have had and it was from your dad mm. uh, as someone who's watched a lot more hockey than he's played over the course <laughs> of his career uh, the idea of going into a rink and walking about and looking for representation that reflected him and not finding it and his reaction to it being that he wanted to make other people comfortable mm. was just something that you know again uh, I'd never considered it from that perspective and immediately uh, it resonated to me um, is that how instructive is, um, is that reaction? The idea that you go to a place, you don't necessarily see it as being necessarily welcoming outright to you, and yet the reaction is to fit in or to make it easier for the people around you. How how mm. how deeply ingrained is that in terms of your experience within the sport? Yeah, I, I mean, my dad is definitely a very non-confrontational person. Um, he's always very happy-go-lucky. Um, and in that sense, I always saw the fear, um, per se, when, when we walked into the arena. Um, I saw the differences in the way that my white mom was being treated versus my black father. Um, and, I mean, it was really upsetting for me. But at the same time, um, my dad always wants others to feel comfortable around him. And he wants other black individuals to be welcomed in the arena. So that's his way of, of welcoming himself into the arena and making sure other people's are people are comfortable around him um, but at the same time making sure his kids are being respected on the ice and he's there to represent for us and 
be in the stands. Um, I remember uh, my first Yale game, we had a parent room across the uh, across the way from our dressing room, and I told him that he could go in there and interact with other parents, and he told me he was just going to wait for me until after the game, uh, just because he didn't want uh, to not be welcomed in the room and people to mistake him for just somebody who worked on campus. Um, and I mean, that stru- st- stuck with me um, right, right from there, um, and it was just very upsetting for me to see my father not even feeling welcomed at my games, um, let alone me not feeling welcomed on the ice. And, and Soraya, one of the things you said there, and you know, just the sense, of, a sense of fear walking into a rink or an mm-hmm. arena, and I, that jumped out to me. I think that's that's so troubling to hear when you think of especially youth sports and how it should be welcoming and joyful for kids to participate in, right? And mm-hmm. that just that sense that not only are you not going to be welcome, but there's actual fear going into those environments. And you know, Akeem, I'm I'm, I'm I don't know if that echoes your experience as well, but for both of you, do you kind of remember a moment as children playing the game growing up where you kind of realized, oh, that's that's not how everyone else experiences it, right? Because it's so striking to me. I think there's so many people who they go to their sporting event and it's just all about fun. It's all about joy. But what was your perception even growing up of that sense of fear or anxiety that you had around the sport? Um. I guess I can jump in first. I mean, uh, I, my story is, I think, even more different than obviously just uh, kids of color growing up in Canada trying to play the game. I'm born in Africa, and I grew up in the Ukraine, so I uh, I moved here. I didn't even speak a word of, word of English, so for me, I had um, an additional barrier there as well. Um, my issues with race started at an early age. Um, I'll never forget it. I was at a tournament in Quebec City, and uh, a parent called me the N-word after I scored a my third goal of the game and my dad was there and it was funny kind of just piggybacking off what Soroya said um I heard it from the stands and I looked at my dad and the first thing he said was well he didn't say it he just kind of went like this just almost like ignore it pretend like it never happened so um it's been this constant battle of even when there is uh people mistreating you that you have to not be almost looked at this as the angry black guy because like I mean I think most people in that situations would lose their mind and, and and cause a ruckus but at the same time you'd be it it would it would look it would look bad on you so um, you have to stand there and obviously represent yourself and your family in in a right way even when you're getting mistreated so obviously that started early and I, the other thing is I think um, a lot of us can relate to that even the few of us that are of color that. Um, have made it to the highest level in the game. It was just really hard for us to get into the game because just how inaccessible the game is and how expensive the game is. And um, that was another way I really felt that I was uh, really different. I had garage sale skates and hand-me-down equipment um, passed down from I don't know how many people wore it. So you're putting on this stuff in the room and you're looking beside you. And it's funny that I still remember the skates came out almost 20 years ago, but kids beside you are wearing the Bauer Vapor 10s and I'm putting on some CCM wheels from uh, 1986. And um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because it's really not that long ago that this was happening. So um, on top of the, obviously, the color barrier and, and the racial issues, then obviously you feel different just because um, you don't have equipment that matches your peers. And um, I think it's always, you're almost like walking on an eggshells trying to fit in and Soraya said it really well in, 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 in the film that she was almost trying to park her blackness um, to be able to fit in with all the all the white folks playing the game. So uh, it was a constant battle. Um, and I think obviously us coming out with these stories is something that's even empowering to us to be able to say, hey, this is what we experienced. And we hope the next generation can can uh, have it a little better, but a little bit better than we did. 
Akeem, I want to follow up with you and, and sort of ask you, because I, I felt like there was an echo as you were talking about your experience with Bill Peters in the movie, where after the incident occurs, you know, and, and again, in, in a similar sort of vein, but obviously a more dramatic one than uh, that Soraya's dad explains, right? The idea that after it happened, you felt the need to make him comfortable, right? Yeah. Um, how pernicious is putting that responsibility on people of color within the game. The idea that it's on them to mm. not react, to make sort of the majority uh, comfortable within that context. How, how difficult is that as a young person playing the game? Oh, it's, it, it's extremely difficult. It's um, really lonely, I think, the best, the best way to put it. Um, I mean, obviously, that incident will stick with me for the rest of my life. And when he came in the dressing room and said that, it was like one of those things that, like, in every other environment, um, somebody can look over to their left or their right and be able to discuss it because it's somebody that looks like them and has gone through their experiences. But um, I say it all the time. I played hockey professionally for 12 years, and I only played with one other player of color. So um it's it's nothing anybody can relate to and i i honestly do believe that the, a lot of my teammates knew um what happened was wrong but they didn't know how to address it like what what are they really going to say and i understood them um uh to be honest um it's a really difficult position to put them into and um i just remember that um after that happened uh, i played obviously under him for the next couple months and i mean i'm a person that like it's really hard to hide what I feel I think people can see and I, I play the game that way I mean I've always been an emotional player um, but at the same time I couldn't address it in the way that I was that I had the right to address it in um, and, and I was walking on eggshells around him and pretending that nothing happened and uh, um, trying to make him feel comfortable and obviously after the after what had happened um, so it, it, it's it's a it's almost something that you can't really put into words um, but at the same time like I said I I mean, talking about these um, instances is something that's important because I'm not the only person that's that's gone through it. Um, I can't imagine what people were going through in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, so like I said, I, I'm really hoping that this is a, an educational film more than anything um, so we can start having these conversations and, and telling people, hey, this is really what we've been going through for a long time. And um, just to finish that off, it took me 10 years to come out with my story because I knew that if I did, um, my career will most likely be over, especially when you're in the American League, right? Mm -hmm. That's so easy to bury somebody in the American League. Um, so obviously, that's the, the, on top of that is the fear of, of coming out and saying, hey, this is what happened to me just because of how much control what I call the old boys club have in the game of hockey. We're in conversation with the professional hockey players Akeem Aliou and Soroya Tinker here on Sportsnet 650. They're part of the Black Ice documentary playing as part of VIF tonight at 6 at the Vancouver Playhouse. And well, you know, th this topic of diversity and racism and anti-racism in hockey, it has been more in the news over the last couple of years. And as part of that, we've heard your story, Akeem. We've heard stories from other players as well. One of the things I found very powerful, though, about watching the movie last night was seeing so many of the stories kind of played out back to back to back, right? Rather than hearing them in bits and pieces in different times and just how universal the experience that you were both describing, that P.K. Subban and Anthony Duclair, among others, Wayne Simmons, were all talking about, I found that really powerful, right? It, it really made it, I think it would make it impossible for anyone to believe that these are isolated incidences, right? When you hear them laid out like that. Did you find that powerful as well? I mean, I'm sure, obviously, you've both lived these experiences, and I'm, I know, I'm sure you've talked to others who've gone through them, but just 
seeing them laid out back to back to back like that in the movie was that powerful for you as well yeah i mean i think that's one part of it is that's what a lot of the hockey establishment wants to believe now is that it's just a few bad apples here and there um and it's funny that if you bring in the only few players of color that are playing the game that they've all experienced these things so it's not isolated um so that that was part of it and then what i think it the the film does an amazing job at is it ties into what's been going on over 100 years ago and how some of the same issues are still happening today and I, true, I truly believe that the hockey establishment now wants you to believe that, hey, this happens here and there, but the overall uh, integrity of the game is still there. And, and that's just not the case. Um, so for me, it's, I think when we were building this movie and, and, and doing the editing and the cutting, I think it was super important for us to tie in what's been going on, like I said, for, for decades. So I thought the movie does a really good job at that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that seeing the incidences moving back to back, um, it shows us how present it is in today's game. Um, obviously, we see the histories as well, and they're the same inc- incidences that have happened in the past. Um, and I think that we really want to see the accountability being had. Um, that's why we show them back to back, and that's why we are blatant with our, our language in the film. Um, and we want to see these uncomfortable conversations being had, and we want to see people uncomfortable in their seats. Um, I think that's the that's the purpose and i mean i hope that seeing those incidences back to back are is going to hit people in the face so i mean um we're here to talk about it and make people uncomfortable soraya you have a very interesting part of the movie where you're discussing your head coach angela james who's Mm -hmm. a hockey hall of famer of course and you talk about how previous to having her as a coach you you'd played angry Mm -hmm. having a black person be in a position of authority within a hockey team, like like a coach. How impactful is that in terms of creating a comfort level where you don't have to play angry? How much is that absent at lower levels of hockey and, uh, frankly, in the NHL as well? Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about representation in the sport all the time. Um, I mean, for, for myself, I remember getting the call saying that Angela was going to be my assistant coach, and I, I bawled my eyes out, to be honest. Um, it was one of those instances where you realize that that's something that you've been holding in your entire career, and um, whether it's me worried about what my coach is going to think of me speaking up and being unapologetically black, um, it's worried about not getting ice time simply because maybe my coach doesn't like black people. Um, and I think those are instances that all of these black players in the game are experiencing day in and day out. So last year I, I had a community. Um, both my head coaches were black. I played with another black player and I felt comfortable. Um, and that's something that a lot of kids at the lower levels don't get to experience just because there's such a lack of representation. Um, and that's a huge reason as to why I still play. Um, there's four black females playing professional hockey at this point, And we need to continue to play because there are hundreds of little black girls playing hockey behind me. And And I think that that's really why we're continuing to play and and show and tell our truths. Um, They deserve to be in the game and they have a community now. um, And that's really what we're aiming to do. The movie itself intertwines these personal accounts with the history, of course, of the uh, Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes. Um, That was a history that I was deeply unfamiliar with uh, as I was watching the film. I mean, I'd heard some stories. I knew the Slapshot story, but there was an awful lot uh, that I didn't know, including like Brace uh, Brace Jennings and the the goalie sort of uh, innovations, which I'd actually 
in incorrectly uh, prescribed to the Pacific Coast Hockey League, which was the old league out here, because that was the first league that allowed the goaltender um, to, to hit the ice. But obviously, a Brace was 20 years prior to that, and I had no idea of that history. We've talked a lot about representation in rinks. How important was it for both of you to be able to tell your story in a way that also platformed sort of this history of black hockey in Canada? Well, I mean, I think that we're, we're standing on the shoulders of um, the people that came before us. Um, and what's funny about it is that I, I've always said it, I almost look at hockey as a religion in Canada. And for us to conveniently disregard the true history of the game of hockey um, has been obviously a, a disservice to people of color. Obviously, we have some incredible contributions like the slap shot and the butterfly technique and and, and coming out and playing the puck and all these different things um, that's just never been talked about. Um, and I feel like, to be honest, that's kind of a lot, a lot of that happens to, to, to people of color. There's always a way in history, like we look at, obviously, I mean, we're talking about south of the border now, but anytime black people own something and had their own wealth, Tulsa, Oklahoma, same thing, um, completely burned down. Um, and it just, this, th that it just continues to repeat itself. And um, I just think that there's a reason um, why people of color are in the position that they are in and, and not at the same level um, as, as, as white folks. Obviously, even if you look at the corporate world, it's the same thing. Um, and I don't think we're any less talented or any less smarter. It's just opportunity and, 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 and perception. So um, I've always said it, and I'm, I'm super proud to be able to um, tell a story. Like the, the one that really got me was the Herb Carnegie story um, with, with what happened with Con Smythe. Um, and that's just never been talked about. Like, there's still a trophy named after this guy in the NHL. And I would, I would argue maybe the most prestigious trophy because that's the hardest time of year um, to be able to be the best player. Um, so I just, um, I'm, I'm super thankful um, to them for being able to, who, the, the, the folks that came before us, the Willie Rees, the Herd Carnegie's, the, the Val James, um, to be able to stick with it and give us a platform to tell these stories. And, I, and, I, and I'm really hoping that they're uh, delighted with the product of what's happened. And uh, I think that their names will grow exponentially from this as well. Zoraya, I wanted to ask you specifically because you said at the beginning of the interview that you reached out proactively mm -hmm. because you wanted to make sure the women's side of things uh, was, was being told in this story as well. And again, you know, women's hockey, it's been a big topic of conversations. We try to figure out where the game is going. How can it get more support? It's, it's a different conversation, but it's connected to what we're talking about here. How do you see the connection between the history of racism in the game and also the, the attempts to bring women into the game as well? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's our time for women's sports to thrive. Um, we see the WNBA, we see the NWSL, and why not the PHF and PWHPA? Um, so, I mean, in that sense, I think on the women's side, I think things are a little more progressive just because we're women trying to fit into the sport. Um, but at the same time, being a black woman in the sport was a challenge in itself. So, I mean, I think that we have our own challenges on the women's side in, in getting support and sponsorships and, and those dollars in so that we can make a, a livable wage um, and have a true professional league. But at the same time, I think um, we are searching for that level of acceptance on the women's side, that respect, just as I was always searching for as a black woman in the game. Um, so they definitely go hand in hand. And um, I think women's hockey is, is definitely on the up and up right now. Um, we're improving, we're making living wage now, um, and we're seeing um, our, our players actually thrive and be able to be professional athletes and just that. Akeem, you brought up 
Herb Carnegie, who's going to be the fourth uh, black person inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in, what, six weeks? Very, very soon here. Um, Grant Fuhrer, uh, your, your assistant coach, mm-hmm. Angela James, right? Um, and, and Herb Carnegie will be the fourth, uh, in addition to Willie O'Ree. So with... Is Jerome in there yet? No, he will be. He, is he? I thought I he think had Jer- Jerome's, Jerome's in. Okay. Jerome's Excuse in, me, yeah. Jerome's in as well. I had so to, that for was a former teammate, I had, to, I had to throw. I love no, Jerome. No, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, fans in this market, of course, don't remember him fondly, but yeah. everyone respected his skill yeah. um, in those West Coast His daughter's days. up and coming as well. Yeah, Jada Ginla, is, is, she's, she's making a name for herself as well, so look well, out. We're going to see her. <laughs> we're going to see her at the Olympics someday yeah. soon. Yeah. Um, incredible. With um, So what do you think that growing representation within the Hockey Hall of Fame, which probably is, you know, very nascent still, right? Still needs a lot of work. But how much does that matter, again, in the context of representation and in the context of some of the conversations like um, we were talking about earlier uh, with Sarai's father? Like, what, what do you think it means to have that growing representation within the most hallowed halls of this sport? Yeah, no, I think it's... The example you gave of Soroya's dad is perfect. Where he he in the in the film he says I'd walk into the arena and look for pictures of people of color and not see any. And now we're going to be seeing it's it's sad to say, but we're going to be seeing close to a handful of pictures in the in in the biggest uh, and most prestigious place in, in in hockey, and that's the Hockey Hall of Fame. So I think kids of color walking in and seeing that know that there'll be a place for them. Um, but I, I I tie this back to that. I think that like. Even the people, I call it the old boys club, that are like holding back and not really wanting this movement to happen and not really being super accepting. I really think this is good for the game. Like this is good for business. And like I think it's good for hockey. I think because I, it's, it's a simple way to look at it. The more people that play it from different backgrounds, from different demographics, from all over the world, it just makes a better product because there's more there's more to choose from. You look at a sport like soccer. That's the reason it's the most popular game in the world because you're playing it at all ends of the earth. Everywhere people are playing soccer. And I think that if we can create that, I think it's going to grow revenue. I think it's going to do a lot of good things for our game. I think it's also going to give the new up-and-coming fan base a different experience. Um, obviously, where I'm from Toronto. It's so different walking into uh, a Raptors game than it is walking into a to a Leaf game. Like it's just the environment is completely different. Um, and look quickly, the Raptors have overtaken the Toronto Maple Leafs in, in market value and in all sorts of different things. And they're a championship team. So, I mean, just to answer your question, I just think it's 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 special for for the up and coming generation. Um, I think it's been a tough ride for some of us coming before them, but I think there's always somebody that needs to pave that pave that path and um i just think there's that there is a place for everybody to play the game as long as that their talents uh, weren't that uh, final few minutes here with professional hockey players akeem aliu and soroy tinker and guys we really appreciate how generous you've been with your time today again the movie is black ice uh looking at the history of of uh, black hockey players in canada playing as part of vif tonight at six at the vancouver playhouse i, I know you've mentioned a little bit about wanting to make people uncomfortable in their seats telling these stories telling the history if somebody goes to see this movie as part of VIF or any time and they're, you know, involved in hockey, whether it's at the grassroots level as a youth coach, junior, college, pros, whatever it is, what do you hope that they can take away from the film and and put into action, put into practice right away, potentially? 
I mean, I think there's so many grassroots programs being represented in the film, HDA, Black Girl Hockey Club, um, Seaside. So I, I mean, get involved with the grassroots. Um, but also, secondly, hold yourself accountable. Um, I always say Google's free. Um, ask questions. Um, and I mean, you don't always have to ask your black counterparts questions. Um, educate yourself and hold yourself accountable and, um, and as well as your teammates, your other coaches and, uh, and whoever else you're around. Yeah, for me, I think um, uh, th there was two things. I think we, we were very careful in um, telling a truthful and, and, and genuine message, but also we didn't want it to feel like we were attacking people. Um, I think that there's a lot of really good people that just don't really know what to do and, and, and how to attack some of these issues that are going on in society. So um, I thought that the grassroots portion was, was important because it's showing that we're doing something about it. We're not just there saying, we're not just there saying there's a problem. Um, we're addressing it. Um, and then I think the second part obviously is just education. I mean, hearing those stories, um, I think they really punch you in the face and say, Hey, shit, I didn't know that that really happened. You know, like I always thought I was a good person. Um, we're not, we were never aware that that's kind of what's going on behind closed doors. Um, so I think it gives you that, uh, sense of hope, um, that things are going to get better. But at the same time, there are so few of us of color in the game that we're going to need a lot of people, a lot of support um, behind this from folks from all different backgrounds, um, genders, what, whatnot. So um, I think those are the two things for me that are super important that people can take away and say, hey, let's let's walk hand in hand um, with these folks and, and, and try to grow the game and, and try to understand that the path they took to get here. They are Akeem Aliou and Soroya Tinker featured in the documentary Black Ice, again, playing as part of VIF tonight at six at the Vancouver Playhouse. You can go to VIF.org to get tickets. Drance and I both fortunate enough to watch it last night and a strong, strong recommendation. You really owe it to yourself if you care about hockey uh, to go see this movie. Guys, thank you so much. We really appreciate the time and the conversation today. Really Thank appreciate you. you. you guys we rock. will be right back. We'll take a quick break. More Canucks Hour coming up. Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Hour, final segment of the week. Another bonus extended edition, two hours here on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Jamie Dodd, my co-host, Canucks insider, Thomas Drantz. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Canucks preseason coverage on Sportsnet 650 brought to you by Black and Lee. Suiting up has never been easier with suits and tuxedos in a modern, wide range of colors, styles, and fits, blackandlee.com. Uh, just before we move on, I mean, we'll, we'll get back into a little bit of Canucks talk here uh, as we end the show, but I do want to say another thank you, big, big thank you uh, to our two guests in the last segment, Akeem Aliou and Soroya Tinker, kind enough to come in studio, uh, very, very generous with their time and also very generous with their insight and information. Again, they're featured as part of the Black Ice documentary, uh, which is playing at VIF tonight at 6. You can still get tickets, VIF.org. Uh, yeah, obviously a little outside of our normal wheelhouse, Drancer, here on Canucks Hour, but I uh, thoroughly enjoyed that interview. I hope our listeners did as well. Yeah, it was an awesome conversation with two really inspiring individuals. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the documentary is an important one to watch. And, you know, obviously a, a different issue than the one we're marking today, but mm -hmm. I think something that still involves us questioning and examining our own biases, right? Our own sort of sense of what we are as Canadians and, and what the game that we love 
as Canadians, but also as sports fans, hockey, of course, um, what, what it really means and what it really represents, not just to us, but to everybody. Well, as I said to, uh, to Sarai Tinker, as she was talking about wanting to make sure that a women a woman's perspective was included in the documentary, you know, the issues are different, but they're connected, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's the same with the black ice and the experience of anti-black racism, which we were just talking about in the previous segment, and some of the issues not just related to sport with National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, but obviously in a larger sense as well. And just again, I do want to say, uh, in recognition of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, radio stations across the country are coming together to amplify, elevate, listen to, and learn from Indigenous voices with a Day to Listen 2022. It's in partnership with the Gord Downey and Cheney Wenjack Fund. You can tune in to radio stations across the country, including our sister stations, Sonic 104.9, Jack 96.9. From 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. today, you'll hear stories from Indigenous leaders, residential school survivors, uh, as well as musicians and teachers. And for more information, you can visit a day to listen. So I would encourage you, if you have some time, uh, to check that out and check some of the other resources out uh, around truth and reconciliation. And again, a different conversation, but I do think there's a thematic link, and I'm I'm really, really glad we could uh, shine a bit of a spotlight on Black Ice and on the stories of of some of the players that are featured in it, including Akeem Aliou and Soraya Tinker. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner, or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And we are coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. So we'll get back into a little bit of what happened last night, what we learned uh, from last night, and uh, looking ahead to the next round of action. Of course, they're going to be in Seattle tomorrow. Uh, then they have another game on Monday, I believe, uh, Drancer. So the preseason action now comes fast and furious for the Vancouver Canucks. They're going to be on the practice ice at UBC at noon. And, you know, as we as we continue the conversation where, okay, what have we learned? Where do things stand with this team at this point through training camp? As we said, you know, about an hour ago now, Probably an area of concern coming in was the defense. Well, definitely an area of concern was coming in for the defense. We haven't seen questions answered there. If anything, it's a little more concerning now uh, than it would have been a week or 10 days ago. I will say, pending health, I'm probably slightly more confident in the forward group than I was coming in to uh, to training camp, right? Because Kuzmenko has started to impress me. You know, Hoaglander, I've liked what he's seen, and it, it definitely seems like any talk about him not featuring on the roster is probably in the rearview mirror at this point. I like what I've seen from Pond Colson. Patterson, there's some promising signs. So we're kind of in this situation, for me at least, where the weakness of the team I'm more worried about and the strength of the team, uh, and again, this is parking goaltending uh, for the moment, I'm actually slightly more confident uh, than I was coming in. So I don't know if maybe that's a draw or maybe if the the concerns on D, on the blue line outweigh some of the positive things I'm seeing on uh, on uh, from the forward group, but it just feels like I have roughly the same take, but more intense, with more conviction <laughs> than I did coming into things right now. Yeah, we've got a lot of time. <laughs> we've got a lot of time yet to see exactly how this all sorts out. The Canucks haven't played a game that me- means anything yet. 
They haven't even played yeah. a game really against a proper NHL apparently, lineup. With apparently, it meant something to Bruce Boudreaux and Jim Rutherford, but it <laughs> it means something to the organization. But it's not about the win. And yeah. and Boudreaux said said as much actually when I followed up. Right, it's not the loss that he's bothered by. It was the habits that he saw. Right, it's the process. And, and and I think for for the management side, it's not the losing. They don't care. It's that you know this team's been talking about doing a certain thing, and I think they haven't seen it. And I think there's disappointment in that. They want us. They want to make sure that this group is dialed, and I don't know that they all are yet. That's I think how management feels about it. So it's more a process critic critique than it is a results critique. I think in terms of how Boudreaux and, and oh, management yeah. are doing. And I mean, it, it's it can be hard to separate the two, but I think you're right. Right? If you know, if they had blown that lead, but they score the winner in three on three overtime, you know, one of the chances they have goes in, and Donato doesn't get a chance to win the game. I'm, I don't think you're hearing, you know, jubilant, elated Bruce Boudreaux after the game. You're still hearing, man, that was really frustrating that we were even in that situation. Well, and let's get into a couple other items, right? Yeah. So you're talking about the blue line. You're talking about the the four forward talent, right? And both have shown up in spades, right? One thing about the forward talent is you're watching Kuzmenko and you can see it immediately that there's the potential for the Canucks to have added another electric contributor on a one-year entry-level deal <laughs> costing them less than a million dollars. Like, well done. Well done. Now, beneath that, belying that, let's say, is the following, right? This team is going to be carrying a ton of cap overages this season, including the $1.25 million from Yaroslav Halak, mm-hmm. right? Last year, they carried a ton of overage bonuses from Quinn Hughes. Elias Pettersson fell like a goal short of hitting his the previous season. And the year prior, they carried some because of Pettersson. Now, all of these compound and roll over year over year, partly because the Canucks are an LTI, but also partly because they're always a cap team, right? So now you've got Kuzmenko and he's lighting it up and you're watching him play and you're saying, oh boy, if this guy's going to play PP1, this could be 50, 55 points. Well, all of a sudden you have to factor in two. Kuzmenko's got 950K in potential bonuses that could roll over on the next year and be something that just continues to pollute, complicate, muddy, Vancouver's cap situation as much as you know the news of the cap going up is seen as oh relief is on the horizon like you never get out of trouble if you're always rolling over penalties right if you're always rolling over dead cap space which the Canucks have now been doing for five years right five years always just a little drips and drabs here and there the Furlan deal and getting out of LTI would certainly help this team right and make no mistake like they'd love to move that deal yeah they'd love to move that deal I wouldn't be shocked if as the injuries have mounted and as the picture of getting to the opening night sort of numbers um, has clarified, uh, at least to some extent, although there's still some uncertainty on the Mikhaev and Travis Dermott files, I wouldn't be surprised if they redoubled their efforts. I don't. I think the organization would, if I asked them, I think they would say, no, that's not the case. It's always been something we'd like to do, right? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, the way that this week has sort of shaken out, finding some deals... Honestly, finding some deals that would help Vancouver's cap situation, help their overall positioning going into the opening day lineup. The situation exacerbated both by the performance of Andre Kuzmenko, who now looks like far, uh, far more likely bet, far safer bet to hit his bonuses, 
particularly as a result of the Besser injury than he did previously, but also because of the injuries and what that does in terms of how the club accounts for various players. You know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the incentive was higher and the desire was higher, and even if a sense of urgency emerged over the next 11 days that, you know, made the Canucks really consider trying to get off uh, some money or, or an LTI deal or you know, shed some of those sort of mid-range salaries in some manner prior to the season, it would help a lot. It would go a long way. And I guarantee you they're looking at the same stuff that I am when I model it out. There's So that's the cap kind of picture, right? And and again, the Canucks kind of find themselves in this, as we've talked about, we talked about this a lot last year, right? In this sort of middle oh, did ground. I, did I squirrel the conversation to talk about the cap picture? My bad. <laughs> you want to talk about the salary cap? What? <laughs> <laughs> wow, Drancer, really out, stepping out of the ordinary today. Well, we did something really out of the ordinary, so you're like, okay, we got to get right back right into back our Right back to group. cap minutia. <laughs> right back into but our no, group. But it right tells now. you a lot, right? It tells you a lot. And it's like, when you're poorly positioned, I always talk about this, it's like a pawn wall in chess, right? When you're poorly positioned, even your good moves have downside, yeah. right? Even your good moves leave you exposed in chess. That's how it works. It's the same thing with cap positioning, right? Like, they land Andre Kuzmenko, and even those good moves have a potential downside in, you know, the, the bonuses that he could hit and the way that they're positioned with LTI. And that's how it's been. And, and then, you know, I know that fans are like, even their good moves you'll hate on. And it's like, well, it's... Not that I'm hating on it. I think that's a home run. If you get Kuzmenko and your total cap spend on him is 1.85 million or whatever, spread out over two and, years, and that's specifically because and he, he looks goes like off. he did last night. Yeah, who cares? That's a great problem. And he's playing on Pedersen's wing, and it, you know, finishing these passes from Quinn Hughes. Yeah, or, it's yeah great. incredible. Awesome. But awesome. it's a but it's a consideration. But it's a consideration. I'm not framing it as a negative. I'm just saying I wonder if because I'm looking at it today. And I'm looking at it with slightly different eyes in the wake of the injuries and in the wake of Kuzmenko's uh, glow up. And I'm sort of, and, and, the, and the prospect that he starts the year on PP1. Yeah. And Vancouver's PP1, by the way, like I know they had Pearson in the bumper instead of Bo Horvat, which by the way, he scored a goal, but that's a huge downgrade, right? Mm -hmm. and, and taking nothing away from Tanner Pearson, who I think can do that job totally fine. But Horvat's one of the best bumper guys in the league and is an outrageous finisher from that spot. Just like absolute clockwork. He puts those, they're almost, um, they're not even high velocity shots, but they're just like pinpoint postage stamp, top corner finishes. Super quick release, all of it. And yeah. and there's like a muscle memory component. He's automatic. It's, in, it's outrageous how good he is from that spot. Uh, even without him... Probably their most important trigger man, the way that they're throwing that puck around last night, you're just like, oh my goodness, it, this it, is going to be an elite power play. It's really hard not to get excited. And here's the thing with the power play. I think it has a very good chance to be elite. I think it also might need to be elite. But you oh, have, it's going to need to be elite, but it's also going to be elite. Yeah. I actually have very little doubt about it. I said it on Twitter last night. Other than maybe Thatcher Demko, it's the thing I'm most confident about going into the Canucks season. Oh, and I'll always be more confident in, in a power the, play the, unit the, the than a goaltender. Goal yeah, just, sure. just and that's no knock against Thatcher Demko, who I'm also confident. But you just look at, if you have Miller, Hughes, and Pedersen around the top on the outside, kind of whipping the puck around together. Plus Horvat. Yeah, but even like as we saw, it still looked really good with Tanner Pearson there. And then you add Bo Horvat. It's just you have those three guys. You're going to have a pretty good power play. Then you add that you have an elite bumper spot guy like Bo Horvat. Then you add, okay, hey, we lost our first choice net front guy, but we can slide Andre Kuzmenko in. There's just a lot of pieces that fit really well together on that power play. An outrageous amount of weaponry. And there's depth there, too. There's depth, right. So I would expect at least some... Uh, level of performance from the second unit as well. well to but, but the second unit's not what I'm expecting to be elite. I'm not. I'm not 
going and I'm not going to say that the Canucks are going to be an elite power play overall so much as I think they're going to have an elite elite first unit. I don't know if they get into the tier of challenging like Edmonton and Toronto as the absolute best of the league. I don't know if they get into the Tampa Bay tier where you've got Hedman, Kucherov, Stamkos, Point up top, and it's just completely unfair. Mm -hmm. You know, those are sort of like the three class ones. I know everyone likes to put the Capitals in there because they're the trendsetter team, but that power play is not, especially their first unit, uh, maybe a little bit inefficient. Ovi might shoot a higher volume than is ideal uh, for that team, but or at least for that unit as a whole. But I think the Canucks have a realistic path of getting into that tier, and I absolutely expect them to at least be one tier down from those three teams. And when that's the company, like, I'm talking about this with confidence. When that's your company, I mean, that's a huge edge. You know, that should be 40 goals of added goal differential onto onto your team, like, right away. Right away, so long as everyone stays healthy. That's a huge edge that Vancouver's got going into the season, and it'll give them a fair bit of wiggle room if it plays out the way I expect it to. So getting back to, we got a little uh, um, sidetracked well, by the power play conversation, but we're that's getting, fine. We're getting I, sidetracked by a lot of conversations. Because I wanted to talk about the power play and just the upside that exists there and the edge you can give them. Do but, we want, are we going to go back to talking about the defensive issues or the, no, cap? the cap? Which of my favorite the Which cap. of my favorite topics are we moving to? Well, and just as you, because you were talking about, you know, okay, <laughs> what, what Andre Kuzmenko's, you know, if he does have a really successful season, what that means for future cap implications and all of that. And, you know, I'm just, it calls to mind some of the conversations we had last season, right? About, okay, you're trying to improve the future picture and the future prospects of this team as much as you can without really sacrificing anything meaningful in the present. And again, we heard over and over when this team arrived in Vancouver and talked to the media, make the playoffs, make the playoffs, make the playoffs, no excuses. It would be a disaster. It would be a failure. All of those things, right? So obviously there is still a, a, a an emphasis on winning this year, at least to a certain extent. But I'm also really struck by just the need to kind of, okay, we got to win this year, but is there anything we can do to improve our future cap situation? Are there any of these moves around the fringes that they can do? They've had a hard time doing it so far. And I look at the, the, to tie these two issues together, right? You said your favorite ones, the defense and the cap situation. You know, I look at what we've seen on the blue line so far, and it just feels like another move is coming to me, right? It just feels like they're going to try to do something to add just a different look, a different fit to this blue line. And I'm just wondering. I think you're right, by the way. Is that. I think one is coming. Can you do, are you going to be able to do both of those things at the same time, right? Where you're addressing this blue line. Or, and at the same time, improving your future cap situation, or you're going to have to try to kind of choose one or the other at a certain point here, right? That, uh, that Just to hear you talk about, okay, making a move that's cap-focused, because I'm anticipating a move uh, on the blue line, and I, maybe they can do both, but they've had trouble doing both well, so far, or it, either so far. Very hard to find a deal like that. Like, if you're trying to move off of Furlan's reportedly uninsured deal, right, Um you know, that's you're asking a team to take almost three million dollars in salary mm-hmm. plus uh, take on the administrative headache of putting it on LTI themselves. Plus, you have to find a team that can a stomach that paycheck hit and um, fit that deal under their upper under the upper limit before putting it on LTI later uh, as a result of, you know, the fact that you can't just trade a LTI contract and have the team benefit from it. Right. So it's like the the path gets pretty narrow by the time you've gone through all of those qualifiers and if you then say and the deal has to help us upgrade the blue line 
you know, that, I mean, <laughs> good luck. That's uh, that's like Houdini, right? That's that's can you escape from the um, locked box with eighteen locks on it? That also you're in a straitjacket when we drop you from the bridge into the ice. Like that's literally what we're talking about here. And it's like Houdini could do it, but maybe not everybody, right? Maybe not everybody should try that. Uh, so that's the level of escape uh, you're sort of describing. Do I expect that to be possible? I don't. Um, I think if the Canucks are going to be able to make one of these sort of cap-related moves, it's either going to have to be, you know, some of their one of their like pretty good players out for a slightly lesser player and a slightly lesser salary in, or they'll have to attach a pretty decent sweetener uh, to get off of a, a deal like the Furlan deal. To this point, Patrick Alvin has been unwilling to part with futures in order to clear cap space or, or add cap flexibility. I don't know if that'll change i suspect it won't unless the prices are are pretty low i think the canucks will just have to figure it out but i'm sure they're exploring their options as for an additional move coming it is like i think they're looking hard at the waiver wire and we've seen over the course of training camp you know they tried to see what they had with jet Wu. i I think there's a sense that he still needs some development time um they tried to see what they have in danny de kaiser i think there's a sense that he hasn't blown the doors down but you know maybe um, in any way, in any event, I don't think there's, I don't think Danny DeKaiser is the answer to any questions that this organization might have been asking itself prior to training camp. And I think there's a recognition of that internally. So we sort of get to this point where, yeah, I, th- I think there's clearly another move that has to come. I don't think it's going to be a big one. I just, I, no. I, it could be, it could be. I'm not saying it's not going to be. I just, I think they're ultimately going to be stuck plucking a guy they like in that 24 to 26 age range off of waivers. And I think that's going to be, you know, cross your fingers and hope for Gustav Forsling. Like that's sort of going to be the play. And I don't, or at least it's most likely to be. I don't actually have a big problem with that. Right. Because again, as we talk about these kind of twin goals that they have, you know, I think Patrick Alvin's reluctance to part with future assets, to trade a guy like Tanner Pearson, like someone, someone who helps you, who's going to be on your first line, who helps you win games. I think that makes total sense, right? No, I'm not going to give up a pick uh, to get off one of these salaries, especially when there's the possibility that they become easier to move farther down the line. And I I think the the most interesting thing about if, if that is all we see, right, is that it just tells you, yes, they want to be competitive this year. They really want to make the playoffs. They want to see the players step up and perform to a certain level. But there's also that reluctance to do anything which might hamper them down the road and to me that will be very telling about where the priorities are for this management group a couple smaller items yeah ahl training camp opens on wednesday of next week so that i think would also be part of the reason why you'd wait to see cuts until perhaps after that monday game right maybe the 4th of october is sort of the date that looms really large uh, additionally tristan nielsen i'm still eyeing that as a situation, particularly after what Ryan Johnson, like Ryan Johnson didn't misspeak when he talked about the interest from other teams no. in Tristan Nielsen. I'd be curious to see if there's um, a deal done next week before AHL training camp opens. I certainly think that's a, a, a priority, a, a possibility that we're, we're going to see uh, in part because of the demand for uh, a really intriguing young wingers services uh, around the NHL and Vancouver's ultimate uh, preference to keep the guys they've developed to this point in-house. That's sort of another small item that I'd expect to see in the next little bit. Um, And then, you know, I think we are now in a point where there's a lot of guys who have some, you know, not pressure, not real pressure, not NHL pressure, but, you know, a little bit of extra push um, to perform well when the Canucks visit Seattle on Saturday and when they 
uh, play again uh, in Vancouver on Monday, or is it in Abbotsford, or is that Wednesday? That is later in the week. Yeah, so yeah. Monday on, on at Rogers Arena. Spencer Martin's one of those guys, right? I think very clearly the organization wants him to leave no doubt and and win that backup job. Um, I think they've thrown that gauntlet down in public, so there's some pressure there. And I think there's some pressure on the overall group, and it doesn't matter if they win or lose, but I think there's uh, some pressure on everybody to play a complete game, to compete a little bit harder, to not rest on this team's laurels when those laurels don't exist. You know, I think there is some pressure on the group to perform at that level, and and that makes this kind of interesting. You know, it, it does. Like, again, I don't care <laughs> at all, but I think the organization does. I think they want to see a little more, and that's going to make these next few preseason games perhaps a little bit more interesting than I would have had any right to expect on Monday. Uh, again, that's going to do it for us for this week. Again, thank you to Akeem Aliou and Soroya Tinker. Make sure you check out BlackIceVIF.org. You can still get tickets for Tremendous that. film. It's playing on October 6th as well. That's next Thursday at International Village. Uh, big day here on the station. We had them in studio. That was awesome. Coming up on The People's Show, one of the great villains in Vancouver sports history, former Vancouver Grizzlies draft pick, Steve Francis, will join the show. I love Steve Francis growing up, by the way. Great career. Really good player in the NBA. Uh, he was also just so cool with his dunks and stuff. Like I love. You ever see like? I had, never held it against him. He had some great like mixtapes from high school and stuff oh. of him just clowning guys on the court. He Anyways. was incredible. He was so, him and Katino Mobley was so sick as that Rockets backcourt. I loved it growing up. Oh my goodness, we found the only hardcore Steve Francis and Katino Mobley fan. No, in, come in on, Vancouver. I was gonna say in Vancouver, not elsewhere. I'm sure in Houston they got their supporters. Anyways, we gotta go. But Steve Francis, twelve thirty on the People Show with Vic Nazar, Randy Janda. It's Sportsnet six fifty.